Welcome to Mind Love, episode 46. Today's episode is all about developing grit, passion, and perseverance. When I started my research, I, of course, had an idea that hard work and self-control would be important to success in life. I think what's really made an impression on me is that these things are pretty different from talent. The independence of grit and character from natural talent, I think is one of the most encouraging things because it makes me feel like whatever the innate gifts are that I was born with, there's always something I can do. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. First off, Mind Love is now a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can get all of your favorite podcasts. It has a super clean layout and you can create playlists and download episodes to play offline. It's my personal favorite and where I listen to all of my podcasts. Don't worry, you can still listen to Mind Love wherever you get your podcasts, but I hope you'll give CastBox a try. Second, don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and leave a review if you can. Reviews really help to entice more amazing guests. Plus, it helps me grow the show, which ultimately helps me give more value to you guys. Hi, friends. People are generally pretty awesome, right? I live in Santa Monica, and there are a lot of inspiring people here, from the startup founders of Silicon Beach to athletes and influencers. Yeah, we have a new category now, influencers. Anyways, my husband and I go slacklining at the beach about a mile away. It's the original Muscle Beach, and it's basically like an adult playground. There are a lot of Olympic athletes that train down there. Some ninja warriors, including my husband, season seven. He'll be happy for that little plug. (laughs) There's people doing acro yoga. It's incredible. Just watching some of them, I always think, I wish I could do that. You have to be born with it, right? Or have you just actually trained for 10,000 hours? And where did you get that time? Or athleticism aside, what about people at the top of their fields intellectually? Did they just get a lucky break? Were they studying flashcards in the womb? Your mom took a lot of supplements during pregnancy, didn't she? Had to be. What happened to my gene pool? Did someone forget to fertilize those things? Was there some sort of air constriction to my little fetus? There's just gotta be a reason I'm not like them, right? Well, that is what we are exploring today. What does it take to be incredibly successful? Is it natural talent or is it the will to persevere? And if it's the latter, is that relentless drive something you're born with or can it be developed? Today, we talk to Angela Duckworth, researcher and author of New York Times bestseller, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. When she was younger, her dad would actually tell her, you're no genius, which is kind of ironic because she went on to become a MacArthur Genius Grant winner. Go figure. If I was told I wasn't a genius by my own father, it might bring me down. But instead, she spent the better part of her life proving him wrong. So much so that she ended up studying the psychology of achievement for well over a decade. I love this episode because it really goes to show you that it doesn't always matter what you're born with. It can help, but all of these things can be developed. And we're going to talk about how to develop them. 
three key things we will learn are what is grit really and why is it so critical to success? How to start developing grit and why it's never too late and how to keep your passion for the long term. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the best way to stay in your highest frequency between episodes. Thousands of listeners are loving my daily morning mind love emails. They're short daily reminders of your own beauty, magic, and power so you can start each day with your best mindset. Just go to mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. First, you'll get a really cool free booklet of Powerless based on proven methods from the most successful people in the world to automate your highest decisions. Plus, you'll get a free guided affirmation meditation. It's set with a binaural frequency known as the Miracle Tone, which is known to make you a magnet for love, health, and abundance. Then it's layered with affirmations to perfectly tune your frequency for transformation. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Angela Duckworth to the show. Thank you very much for having me, Melissa. So tell us about your background and what originally piqued your interest in studying grit. I was a teacher before I was a psychologist and I always wondered why it was that some of my students ended up being so much more successful than others. And I knew it couldn't just be their talent because I would sit with these kids at lunchtime and kids who were failing my class were very, very smart when you got them talking about things other than algebra. So I think that was a big part of why I ended up studying the psychology of success. When I was reading your book, One part that stuck out to me was that when you were younger, your father actually said things like, you're no genius. I come from really supportive parents, so it's hard for me to really understand how I would have turned out if I had been told that all the time. But I do feel like it would have discouraged me a little bit. Do you think that being told those things held you back at all, or did it somehow push you? I think there's one of two reactions you can have when someone tells you you can't do something, that you're not good enough. For many people, maybe most people, it's discouraging. It makes you try less hard. It makes you give up. But for me, I had the opposite. I had the I'll show you response. And I do feel like I have this rebellious streak when my dad thought he didn't have a genius on his hands as a daughter. I thought, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to do something with my life. So it almost sounds like you were told you weren't a genius. So you thought to yourself, well, fine, this might not come naturally, but I'm going to work extra hard so you can't tell. (laughs) Do you think that that's what pushed you towards psychology in general? Or would you say you more realize those patterns in hindsight? I think I've been interested in these questions because of my dad's influence. You know, he himself was obsessed really with achievement, his own achievement, his family's achievement, and, you know, people at his company who seemed to be achieving more than he was or less than he was. So I do think that a lot of it comes from that childhood experience. My dad would even talk about at the dinner table, who is the greater artist, Picasso or Monet? It's just a very weird upbringing. But I do think that the teaching later on as an adult and then watching young people grow up to live very different lives. I think that really strengthened my interest. And then finally, you know, I think for anyone who's wondering, like, what am I going to do with my life? What's my passion? I think there's a little bit of just your personal curiosity. And I don't know that any scientist knows where your curiosity comes from for certain topics, but just human nature 
and motivation and behavior, you know, whether it's about achievement or just, you know, why people do what they do in line at Starbucks. These are where my thoughts are always, always going. So while I was reading your book, all I could think about was my former employer. And I feel like I've been talking about him a lot recently. I talked about him in episode 42, but that's probably why it's at the forefront of my brain. Well, he'd say some pretty discouraging things. And I'd like coil back in disbelief. But he'd say stuff like, I don't understand. When people told me I wouldn't amount to anything, I just proved them wrong. Show me that I'm wrong. Well, people who know me know that I thrive on positive reinforcement. So I just straight up tell him, your management style does not work with me. But now in reading your story, there's a part of me that wishes I was a little bit more that way. But it is funny because it feels like bringing awareness to that has changed that in me a little bit. Is that even possible? Or is our motivation style more nature over nurture? The signature of human nature is adaptability. And people never stop learning and they never stop changing. It might feel like things are stuck. I mean, you might think like, well, what about this relationship I've had? You know, that hasn't changed in positive ways. But really, people are remarkably adaptive. And we really are learning. I mean, even in this conversation, you're learning something and you won't be the same and neither will I. So I absolutely believe that change is possible. But let me ask you just a question about what you said. If I told you that I didn't think you would be successful, what would your reaction be to me? A virtual stranger, maybe you know a little bit about me, but I say, thought about it, I've gone to the trouble of looking up your podcast, I really don't think it's going to work. Would you have the I'll show you response or would you be discouraged? So the moment you just asked me that, I realized, well, yeah, I would show you. So that's a really good example of how telling the same old stories can lock you in a pattern. <laughs> but I definitely did explore more interests than most people I know. Ever since I can remember, I was obsessed with acquiring as many skills as possible. I thought of life like a video game and I was leveling up my character. But then through reading business books, I started realizing, wait a second, successful people are really good at narrowing down on one thing. I'm going to end up being a Jill of all trades and a master of none. So what's changed recently is that a little over a year ago, I really started to buckle down and apply all the things I was learning. I did every single exercise I could on trying to find my passion, but thankfully it worked. And it's what blossomed into this podcast. So now I'm just on this entire new level of what I'm willing to do, what I believe I can do, and where I see myself going. It's like something clicked inside of me that I had never really felt before. What you just said is so profound, and I just want to unpack it a little bit. When researchers who study goal commitment, the process of like how do human beings become committed to goals, you know, one of the metaphors that they try to communicate this process by is like crossing a river. For history buffs, they might know the Rubicon as the river that Caesar crossed. And once he set foot in the river and then crossed the river, it really was a kind of irreversible thing. It basically meant that they were he was marching into war. And so for human beings like you, you know, once you've gotten to a certain depth of understanding understanding about what you really want to do. It is really like crossing a river. And it's very different when you're on one side where you're kind of debating and you're not sure, should you have a podcast? And I don't know, maybe not. And then you're on the other side. And one of the big differences is when you are on that other side of the river and you know you are committed, then when someone says, you know what, I don't think you can do it, you get all fired up. It doubles your energy. And now that comment's just an obstacle to climb over. 
before you've crossed that river and someone says, you know, I just don't think you can do it. You're in that debating mode. That could be the thing that discourages you from doing it all. So I think a lot hinges on whether you're on one side of the river of goal commitment or the other. For the record, I think skipping across different interests gets a bad rap, especially in the business world. So I just wanted to address this real quick. I believe, for my personality type, dipping my feet into different interests was essential to actually finding the thing that I could put all of my love and passion into. Some people, like my husband, are lucky enough to know what they want to do from a young age. I was not that girl. I loved too many things. I was actually good at too many things, not to toot my own horn, toot. I find something that I like, and if it's challenging, and I'm at least kind of good at it, I get this big rush of passion, and then the passion dies off. It wasn't until I had hundreds of experiences like this that I was finally able to start analyzing what my favorite activities had in common, what my friends saw in me, what I liked and disliked about past jobs, that I finally started to figure out my life path. There are all of these business books these days that warn you about being all over the place, finding your one thing or niching down. And while I agree that that's important, and sometimes you can find success faster if you do those things, I would advise against feeling pressured to narrow it down too early if you're not feeling called to do so. Because I don't know about you, but I'm not looking for just success. I want purpose and happiness and inspiration. And that's hard to do if you're being driven by fear. Besides, that silly phrase is not jack of all trades, master of none. The phrase is a jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. And it was meant to be a compliment to a generalist over a specialist. So it seems like the phrase was shortened and forgotten or changed for a different agenda. Who knows? But regardless, I see it as validation to do what feels right for you, not what everyone else deems acceptable. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word morning to 33777. Do you love story-driven podcasts? I do, and there's a brand new one that I think you're going to love. It's called You Probably Think This Story's About You. The story just grabs you from the start. It all starts with Brittany, who thinks she's found her soulmate, only to find out things aren't as they seem. So she goes on a mission to find out the truth, and as she digs deeper, she realizes the guy's a master of deception. But here's the thing. As Brittany unravels his lies, she ends up on this journey of self-discovery. She starts to see how her own complicated past with addiction, sisterhood, and deep family bonds all have shaped her. And that's when it hits you. This story isn't really about him at all. It's about Brittany finding herself and learning who she really is. 
Trust me, you'll be hooked from episode one, wondering where Britney's path will lead her next. It's a story that'll make you look at your own life and relationships in a whole new way. Seriously, grab your headphones and start from episode one of You Probably Think This Story's About You. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll come out feeling heard and stronger. Listen and follow You Probably Think This Story's About You wherever you listen to podcasts. It's always been interesting to me how important early childhood is for development. It seems like psychology books tell you that birth to age five is supposed to speak to everything we become somehow. How does that apply to grit? Is there an age range that will better set up children for success later in life? You can never begin too early to get curious, expand your mind. I don't think we want to wait till kids are 16 or 17 to pay attention to the people that they are developing into. But at the same time, it's never too late. So yes, you know, childhood is formative in the sense that once you have a certain habit of interacting with people, like certain beliefs or schemas that allow you to make sense of the world, they tend to get reinforced over and over again. I mean, if you have a habit of walking to a room and smiling first thing, you know, that's going to get reinforced. So why not start that habit early in life? But if you're listening to this and you're not young, <laughs> or certainly it's been a while since you're in the ages that we were just talking about, I also think it's not too late. Well, that's good to know. There is hope. <laughs> but how does the process of developing grit differ between children and adults? I know like learning a language is a lot easier for children because their minds are constantly forming these new connections. So I'm wondering, is that the same with grit? Yeah, I had a great swim teacher once. His name was Terry Lachlan. I actually wrote about him in the book briefly because he's a paragon of grit. And he spent his whole life teaching people how to swim, little kids and then a lot of adults. And he always said that with little kids, because they didn't have any bad habit and they're children, they learned so quickly, but they didn't have a lot of motivation and discipline. The adult swimmers were exactly the opposite. I mean, it took a little while. Brains were a little rustier, but they had so much motivation and discipline, it kind of evened out. And maybe that's the same thing in terms of you know, self-development and some of the insights that I know you know you like to think about. Why do some people give up so easily and some people just relentlessly keep going? Did you find any patterns or trends in your research? Giving up, I think, in the moment from the outside can look irrational, right? I mean, I felt like this all the time when I was a teacher and I would have students in my classroom, seventh graders. Later on, I taught high school students and they would give up after, for example, trying to solve a problem once, not getting the answer. They're just like putting their pencil down. So to me, that seemed irrational. I could see around the corner. I could see that if they tried again, if they got a little feedback, if they figured out why they made the mistake the first time, that around the corner was them understanding that problem and being able to get it correct. They couldn't see that far. I think you have to always keep in mind that when people give up to them in their head where they are from where they sit and their experience, it's exactly the rational thing to do. So the student has a life that I can't see, but maybe it was a whole series of failures. Maybe pretty much every time they got math homework, they were totally confused and hated it. So when they get to my class and they're giving up within a few seconds, it's exactly what makes sense for them. I think understanding that is the first step to helping people not give up, right? Because empathy always comes first. And I think understanding why somebody makes the decisions they do 
before we try to help them make different decisions is the way to go. So my husband figured out his life path early. A teacher told him about graphic design. He thought, yep, that's definitely me. He went to school for it. He never switched his major. And then he launched his own company pretty soon after graduation. So when we were first comparing stories, I would think, wow, that would have been nice to have clarity so early. (laughs) Where would I be now? But if I'm being honest with myself, I feel like there's just no way with my personality that that would have happened. I am the kind of person that wants to dip my finger in all of the desserts before I commit to putting one on my plate. I feel like I've had about a hundred different jobs in different areas, but I've recently been thankful for that because I was able to see what I liked and what I disliked from each job, see what they had in common and see what I was actually good at. And then I was able to figure out what I wanted to do. But for a while, I was worried I was going to have career ADD for the rest of my life. Well, the reason that this podcast is so perfect is because while it does have a general theme, it still allows me to explore a lot of different topics within that theme, and I'm always learning. So it's kind of a way to be all over the place in a more managed way. (laughs) So do you think that it's better to find your calling early, or is there a benefit to exploring a lot of different areas? I've always been jealous of those people who knew at a really early age exactly what they wanted to do and actually were right about it. I mean, by the way, there are a lot of people who know exactly what they want to do and then they figure out, nope, that's not for me. But I know what you're talking about. You know, my sister is a doctor. She has wanted to be a doctor since she was a little kid. She grew up to be a doctor. She loves being a doctor. And I'm deeply jealous of the clarity she had. I mean, for me, it was torture wandering from my 20s all the way up till I was 32, not really knowing where I would end up. And I personally found that to be an uncomfortable, restless kind of way of being. And I'm much happier being who I am today, because I can tell you till my dying day, I'm going to be a psychologist studying you know, how people develop. So there's a little bit of jealousy in me for the people who have a calling relatively early. But I would also say that, you know, what happened to you is actually really revealing as maybe a path forward for those people who don't have a calling when they're very young and don't have that clarity. What you're looking for is the through line. So for you, you probably recognize you have a very curious mind. You love learning new things. In fact, you probably love meeting new people and kind of figuring out new topics as opposed to a craftsman who wants to work for 40 or 50 years on one. thing. But at the same time, you found that through line and you found something that enables you to bring everything back to a kind of theme. Somebody else who reminds me of just what you said is Larry King. When he interviewed me, he asked me a very similar question. And I pointed out to him, actually, because he had just taken my grit scale during our interview. And he said, oh, you know, my interests are not consistent at all from year to year. But you say I'm gritty. And I said to him, yeah, I know you interview different people every week, every day. But you're still somebody who's telling stories and asking questions. And I think that through line for him is what's provided that continuity. It's a different way of finding a calling. First of all, it's kind of funny that we both figured out what we wanted to do with our lives when we were 32, but now people keep telling me, oh, you're 33, it's your Jesus year. Apparently, you're supposed to be reborn in some way, so maybe that's a coincidence, maybe it's not. But how did you know that this field was it for you? Was there something about it that just felt right, or did you have to build to that? Kind of like love at first sight versus a friendship that slowly develops into love. 
I think the process of developing a passion, and I use the word developing very intentionally. I think most people would say discovering a passion, but I prefer to call it developing a passion because it's just as you say, it, it develops over time. It develops with experience, not you know all of a sudden in a flash of insight on a single day, at least for most people that I've studied and also for myself. So the idea of becoming a psychologist, knowing that I wanted to work on things that would help kids... So for me, my top level goal is to help kids thrive using psychological science. I mean, it really took me years to develop that you know, short phrase that will define the rest of my life. It didn't happen on a single day. At the same time, when you apply to graduate school, you do have to send in those applications. And so it's a very kind of binary event. It happens. And so, you know, one day you are not in graduate school and the next day you are. So I'm not saying there aren't any sudden changes in people's lives that have a beginning and an end that's very discreet. But I still think there's that gradual process. I mean, I could have gone through the first year of graduate school and figured out that maybe it wasn't the right fit, but instead I got more interested. By my third year, I figured, you know what, I'm gonna make it in this thing and I'm gonna do work that has applications to kids' lives. So it really developed and developed and developed. Okay, so we've established that passion and grit can be developed. I think that's really important to know and to really let sink in because I know for me, not having that one thing or feeling like there was one thing I was amazing at felt like a fault for a really long time. But looking back at where I am today, my current passion was totally developed alongside a multitude of other passions. And then after a decade, my side interest of living a more mindful life and working on myself in all of these ways in order to find that passion became the only thing I wanted to talk about. So for listeners that are more in the middle or even the beginning of discovering that passion and they don't feel very gritty, how do you begin to develop that grit? You want to first ask yourself, what is it about me at this point in my life where I think I could really use some shoring up in terms of my grit? And I want to give a couple suggestions there. For some people that I meet, they have something they're really passionate about. They can tell me that they love a certain topic, that it's not a fleeting interest, that it's purposeful to them, it has meaning, but they don't really feel like they're getting anywhere. They would not say that they have resilient or a work ethic. And for those people, I say, okay, well, now that you know yourself well enough to know that you should be working harder, more diligently, more resiliently, now let's go and work on those limitations. And there's a lot of science about how people develop all of those things, work ethic, resilience in the face of adversity, et cetera. On the other hand, you might look in the mirror and decide that that's not your problem. You have the opposite problem. You've got a terrific work ethic. Many people get in touch with me and say, I am a fiercely hard worker. I'm no problem coming early and staying late. My problem is that I don't have a passion. My problem is I don't truly love what I do. Now, there too, there's science on how interests develop and also how people develop a sense of purpose for their work. And for both of those things, one of the things I just want to leave people with a recommendation about is that you have to go out and experience the world. I mean, you can't figure out a passion, develop a passion in your bedroom or even in your bedroom writing in your journal, right? If you think you might like becoming a veterinarian, you have to go out and work with animals. So it's very kind of trial and error when it comes to developing a passion. So where you feel now that you need help is where you need to go and put some work in. 
I recently had a guest on episode 41, Murray Hittery, and we were discussing what it takes to find something that you'll be really successful at. He gave advice that just felt right to me because there are so many people who feel just lost because they don't have that one passion or that one thing that's been a running theme through their entire life. And he said, it's not so much about finding your passion as it is about finding something you're so intensely curious about that'll keep your interest for years. But I just love that because my passion is directly related to my curiosity over all of the subjects that I bring on this podcast. It's almost like just that question of what's your passion or what do you want to do with your life holds more weight than the question itself. It's tied to these worries about the future or this weight of what we haven't yet accomplished. But just reframing that question to what are you curious about doesn't ask you what you plan to do with that curiosity. It doesn't hold any expectations of what you've already done with the topic. It just brings it to the present moment. And then suddenly you're free to respond with what truly connects instead of what you think you should be doing or what other people think you should be doing. What do you want to be when you grow up is a question that almost nobody has a good answer to. And I don't know anybody who likes answering it. So I love the idea of asking any other question. What is your passion or what do you want to be when you grow up? There's too much pressure asking somebody what their passion is. And if they don't have one, it can be paralyzing. But asking you know, what you're curious about, the way I like to put it is on a Saturday morning, you wake up. And, you know, maybe you make coffee if you drink coffee. And really, honestly, while the coffee's brewing, you could be thinking about anything. What do you think about? I'll tell you, for me, my head is immediately thinking about psychology. I mean, I'm thinking about an article I read. I'm thinking about an idea that I had the other day. And it's totally voluntary, right? So I think it's a clue. If you don't know what your passion is, ask yourself where your mind wanders when you have a free moment. And it's a breadcrumb trail to curiosity and your personal interests. I'll give you another question, though, that I think is also useful, which is, you know, is there a problem in the world that really makes you mad? Is there something that you feel a kind of emotional connection to as a problem? And it doesn't have to be a political thing. It could be like an aunt you have who's suffering from breast cancer and like that's something you want to do something about. So I think on the one hand, people can use curiosity as a way of developing a passion, beginning that long process. And an alternative, it's no better or worse, is to think about your values and things that really get you emotional and things that you want to change or fix in the world or for people that you love. I like that idea of what you connect with emotionally, because a spiritual teacher once told me that our emotions are gateways to deeper levels of our consciousness. And that's always kind of stuck with me. I like the idea of using where you find joy as little beacons to help you find your passion. So do you have the belief that we were meant to do certain things, or do you think it's more about our culture and our environment that shape us? I think the funny thing about callings, and when people say I have a calling, what they sometimes forget, or maybe they never knew, is that the word calling comes from religion. I mean, it came from feeling called by God. Now, most people that I talk to are not using it in that term, but it is an interesting history because that is the feeling that you have, that it's like your destiny, and almost as if the destiny had been written even before you were born. So you were just fulfilling a destiny. And I don't think that that is necessarily uh, what actually happens, but it's certainly what it feels like. And I have felt that too sometimes. It's sort of like I was meant to do this. So I know exactly what these 
people mean when I'm interviewing them, these paragons of grit, and they say that. I think really what a calling is, is when something that you do is so aligned with your personal values of what you think is important and your place in the world and how you can be helpful, as well as your curiosity and interests. And just to be really specific about it, I'll just give myself an example and I'll give a chef. So I really love psychology. I mean, nobody would have to pay me to be a psychologist. It's so fun for me. It's like the most interesting topic in the world. At the same time, my highest moral value is to help kids. And so I get to do both at the same time. And it's like electric. It's like, wow, this is what I was meant to do. At least that's how it feels. The chef example I wanted to give you is Mark Vetri is a star chef here in my hometown of Philadelphia. And for him, being a chef is a way of being creative. He was always creative. He told me that he might have ended up becoming a guitar player one day, but, you know, music. It also resonates deeply with his family traditions. He comes from an Italian family. He had big Sunday meals with the huge extended family around the table. His grandmother taught him how to make meatballs. So it's resonant with his, like, childhood and his family traditions. And then the guy just loves to eat. I mean, he just loves food. And he loves working with his hands. So for him, maybe being a chef isn't his destiny or calling. Maybe he could have been a guitar player. It feels so right to him, though, because it overlaps with so many things about him that he feels defined who he is as a person. You know I'm all about aligning in every aspect of life, right? Well, that philosophy extends to hiring, too. When it comes to finding the perfect fit for your business, sometimes the best approach is to stop the endless searching and start focusing on alignment. And that's where Indeed comes in. Indeed is like the matchmaker of the hiring world. With millions of job seekers visiting their platform every month, their powerful matching engine is designed to connect you with candidates who truly align with your needs and values. But here's the thing. Indeed isn't just about finding any old match. They're committed to delivering quality. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed provides the highest caliber of candidates compared to other job sites. And that's the kind of alignment I'm talking about. As a busy mom juggling episodes, clients, retreat planning, family life, I just don't have time to waste on a drawn out hiring process. And that's why I love Indeed because it streamlines everything from scheduling interviews to screening applicants and messaging potential hires all in one central hub. And the more you use Indeed, the smarter it gets. It learns from your preferences. With over 3.5 million businesses worldwide trusting Indeed to align them with top-notch talent, it's pretty clear that this platform is the real deal. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support my show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Sometimes I wake up feeling like I hate everything. Like this dark cloud is over my day and I look to the past and the future and everything feels tainted like this is how it's always been. Those types of days used to last months and now they're pretty few and far between and they rarely last more than a few hours, but it can still make me feel like a fraud. I'm sharing this because I know that we all carry around these things that make us feel different or less than, but if we keep them bottled up, the shame spirals and creates more problems than that initial thought. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. 
For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's difficult finding friends or family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. Therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know. It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of you. BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online, so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. You've touched on core values a couple of times. And honestly, when I'm looking at a list of values, I can't help but think, well, yeah, all of those sound nice. (laughs) Do you have any tips for defining core values that you'll actually connect with for the long term? You could try as an exercise something called the values affirmation. It's an activity that was developed by researchers who are now at Stanford University, including Jeff Cohen and Claude Steele. And they had the idea that you would give people a short list of values that they could have. Make a lot of money, be really famous, help other people, strengthen my community, really all the things that people would want. But they showed 12 to 15 of these. And you, as somebody who's doing this activity, simply circle the two or three that you personally hold most dear. So let's imagine that you circled friends and family and also always be curious or something, right? Just thinking about who you are. Then what you do is you write about them for about 10 minutes. And that's really the whole activity. And you can write anything you want. I mean, you can write about like how you came to have those values. You can write about people who inspire you. There are no directions really on the part where you're supposed to write about it. That is the whole thing. 10, maybe 11 minutes. The values affirmation is really clarifying. It helps you strengthen the parts of your identity that you're most proud of. It's actually been used as an intervention. Turns out that when kids, particularly kids who come from, you know, marginalized, disadvantaged backgrounds, in their school context, that when they do this values affirmation activity, they actually end up doing better in school. There's a study of women dieting and trying to exercise. And turns out when you do values affirmation, you're much more open to advice about physical health and you actually end up being you know, more active. So there's something kind of magical about getting in touch with those values who define who you are. And I would imagine that for most people, when they do that, it's clarifying. But if you did it a month later, you wouldn't be circling two totally different values. People don't change that quickly when it comes to their values. True. And values really go hand in hand with your why. Simon Sinek talks about how when starting a business or a life path, there's the what and there's the how. But the most important thing to know is why you're doing it in the first place. Because most goals are long-term, and it's easy to get bogged down with all of the details and all of the setbacks. But you have a much better chance of staying passionate if you keep coming back to the bigger picture of the change you want to make in the world, or even just something as simple as the life you want to provide for your family. You mentioned reinforcing the positive things as well, and I wanted to just emphasize that because that has seriously been one of the most effective things I've done to accomplish my goals so far. And it's hard to tell what made the biggest change in my more recently developed grittiness, because for me, I reached a breaking point of saying, okay, enough consuming, enough learning what to do time to apply. And I went full force of actually doing all of the things in all the books I was reading. 
So it's not the best case study because I definitely wasn't isolating each thing like a proper experiment would do. But I can say that tracking my small wins was the most rewarding new habit that I developed. I would get really excited about just the little things moving me toward my goal. And even now, when something good happens, I take a mental note and I get excited about them throughout my day. It just feels really good. So in what ways do you suggest reinforcing the positive things? I think small wins are enormously important. I'm curious and I want to ask you a question like, how did you track it? Do you have a journal? Like, did you keep track on your phone? How did that play out for you? After trying a few different journals and methods, I fell in love with The Self Journal by BestSelf.co. I like it because it structures all of my little morning and evening rituals, like planning my day the night before and morning and evening gratitude, tracking wins, lessons learned throughout the day, and writing my goal out every single day. There are a couple changes I would make to the journal, but overall, I just love it. It's a great idea. I've seen some of those on Amazon, and I think they're actually great. And like you said, you know, different things work for different people. But that idea of drawing your attention to small wins, two things to say. One is I think everybody needs them. It doesn't matter whether you're already the CEO of the company or you're somebody at the very bottom. It's just human nature to be always keeping track, frankly, of whether things are trending in the right direction or not. And some of the most resilient, hardworking people, think about Bob Mankoff, who was the editor for cartoons at The New Yorker, who got rejected two thousand times before he got his very first cartoon in. How do you keep going when you're on like cartoon 1999 and you don't really obviously have any wins? Well, really what he was doing was he was keeping track of small wins that weren't obvious to other people. Like he told me, if I just drew somebody's hair better that day, I consider that a victory. Like small, small wins, I think are what really keep anybody going. So I think they're enormously important. And I think actually, if you don't want to think about a journal, you do have to think about some mechanism, some discipline of looking at positive things in your life. Because the second thing I want to say is that, you know, there's a kind of tendency in human nature to think about our problems, right? And that's partly because we have to survive and we developed over millions of years to pay attention to our problems, our predators, our threats. And that's where a lot of our attention goes. So that journal is forcing you to attend to good things in your life. Three blessings exercises, which a lot of people do before they get out of bed, I do. You know, those are other kinds of disciplines to bring our attention back to things that are going well. Practicing gratitude is great, too, because I think it balances out our focus on what we want, what we're trying to achieve, and what we already have. Because you're right, it can be really easy to get caught on the hard things, or even worse, on the lack. It's funny because... I recognized how much in my life had changed once I started really developing my routines, but only recently did I realize just how critical they were, if that makes any sense. So this year, I went on two pretty big vacations. And in the past, I've let my routines go a bit when I've traveled. I figured you're supposed to chill and recharge on vacation. But these last two times, I came back and I felt lost and pretty stressed out about it. Like I lost momentum and I was suddenly behind on everything I was working towards, which is really the last thing you want to feel when you come back from vacation and you're supposed to be refreshed and ready to go. The worst part is those feelings ended up triggering other things, mainly things I worked hard to overcome, like my eating disorder, which led to 
several days of a depressive spiral. So this last time I forced myself to go back and fill in the days I had missed. And suddenly I realized, wow, I'm still on track. I've actually managed to make shit happen while traveling. That is exactly what we're talking about. It's as if we're ignoring all the progress and all the positive things. We all do it, right? I mean, your head goes to your to-do list, the unfinished things, you know, the things that didn't go well. Oh gosh, I can't believe I said that. And so all of those things kind of take up our consciousness and we do need this discipline. And it's a funny thing to call it a discipline, to be thinking about your wins and the things that you're grateful for, but it really is. And I actually think of it in a way as like going to the gym, right? You can't really just go to the gym for a day or a week, or frankly, you can't even go for a year and expect it to like last the rest of your life. You have to just keep going back. And I think it's the same thing with, you know, paying attention to what's going well in our life and being grateful. It also really reminds me of the beauty of awareness. A few years ago, I may not have put those pieces together that, oh, I'm feeling this way because I lost my structure and I'm focusing on the wrong things. I may have just felt that slight downward spiral and let it keep going. But instead, I was able to regroup and now I just make sure to keep a loose structure even when I am on vacation. Some people might feel better being just totally free, but I have to be honest about where I am. It can feel pretty rigid sometimes. And there's, <laughs> there have been times for sure that I've just wanted to throw it all to the wind. So I'm curious though, when developing grit and you found something that you do want to stick to, what do you think are the best ways to continuously make progress on it without getting burnt out? Burnout is a real thing. And I want to say to those people who are listening, who have felt that they were exhausted at some point in their career, maybe even now, it's not an illusion. Burnout is real. So, you know, first of all, we should have some compassion for ourselves. And lots and lots and lots of people feel burned out. And it's not a permanent condition. Lots of people who have felt burnout no longer feel burned out. Well, where does burnout come from? I mean, chiefly, the feeling of burnout is a feeling of exhaustion and a feeling of helplessness and a feeling of lack of progress. I mean, just to tie this to what we were just discussing, it's feeling like you're not having any small wins, right? It's feeling like you're not making progress and you're trying so hard. That's why you feel so exhausted. Now, one way to deal with burnout is to kind of try to attend more through the kind of practice that you were talking about to what's going well. I do also want to say that we're physical creatures too, right? So writing in a gratitude journal or another kind of journal is getting at our, you know, our mental life. But we need sleep. We need good food. We need exercise. We need to just relax sometimes and we need to laugh. And our physical needs as creatures, I think, are part of burnout for at least some people when they're working really long hours and they're not maintaining a healthy lifestyle. So pay attention to what's going well and also, you know, take care of yourself to the extent that you can. It's so true. We have this tendency to isolate our emotions or our states of mind or even our health, but everything's connected. I just saw a meme the other day that said, Drink water, get sunlight. You're basically a houseplant with more complicated emotions. <laughs> I loved that. But another big factor in happiness is actually making progress towards something and feeling like you have a purpose. But you can technically have both of those things without having grit. Your purpose can come from your family or your progress can be on a lot of short-term goals. So I'm curious if you found any patterns or a relationship between happiness and grittiness. I find in my data on thousands of adults of all ages that happiness and grit are very related. In other words, grittier people in my data are also happier 
and vice versa. Of course, that's no guarantee that if you're gritty, you're going to absolutely be a happy person. I mean, there must be gritty people who are stressed out and unhappy, but in general, they go together. That relationship between success and feeling happy about your life has always fascinated me because there is a stereotype that people at the top are lonely and you have to trade off being good at what you do with being happy when you come home from work. And I think in general that the opposite is the case. I sit down next to somebody on the airplane and I turn to them and I say, do you love what you do? And without missing a beat, that person says, oh my gosh, I love what I do. And they tell me about it. And then they share details about how hard certain challenges have been, but how they got around them. You know, it's clear they, they put in long hours. These are people who in general are very, very happy. I mean, I won't say that they're always relaxed. I won't say that they don't grind their teeth as I do, by the way. So, so it's not that you have no problems, but I do think it's a wonderful way to live your life. Earlier, we were talking about that I'll show you mentality. And that doesn't always come from the best place, like what brings you joy. It's more about proving someone wrong. And it can also borderline on an obsession. So I'm wondering, is there ever a downside to grit? I think there can be dysfunctional ways of being gritty. In other words, all that stubbornness and all that passion you have not serving you well and certainly not serving other people well. I mean, just to use an extreme example, you could argue that Hitler was gritty, but certainly an evil person, right? And so that's an extreme example where passion and perseverance are doing harm and not good. But I think the more everyday examples of kind of grit gone bad, as it were. Maybe people can be stubborn for the wrong reasons. And certainly spending your whole life to prove your dad wrong about something, for example, which I could even maybe wonder to myself, like, is that what I did? Eventually, you do have to make sure that your values are your own. There's this phrase in psychology called introjection. And it's the idea that at some point, something that was extrinsically motivated for some external reason you were doing it, like, oh, I'm going to show, show you wrong, I'm going to prove you wrong, becomes internalized and becomes something that you actually care about yourself. And I think you've got to be mindful that your motivation, I think, ultimately, to be a fulfilled person should be internal. And you have to make peace with it. Upon reflection, is that still what you would want to do? And if you can't answer yes, then you should keep adjusting. So say you're trying to develop grit in your household, maybe with your kids. How do you find the balance of helping them to develop grit versus making sure they explore all of the options that life has to offer? I'm a mom as well as a psychologist. In fact, I was pregnant with my second daughter when I was in my first year of graduate school. So I think of myself as kind of growing up as a mom and as a scientist all at the same time. And I have always been asking myself this question of what am I supposed to do? And it's never easy. I mean, it's not even easy for me. And I study grit and motivation all day. One thing I think is important, and that is to, to the extent possible, at whatever age a child is like to maximize their choice. And I'm not saying that kids should be in charge of everything and they should be able to eat ice cream for 
breakfast. What I am saying is that, for example, when you want a kid to learn work ethic and you know that they should work hard, instead of you choosing their activity or their sport or their musical instrument, why not let them, you know, within bounds choose? So before you say, well, I signed up for piano lessons, maybe it could be a conversation that goes like this. I really think that it's important in our family that everybody do a hard thing. Mommy does a hard thing. Daddy does a hard thing. By doing hard things, we get stronger. And that's really important. So you can pick between piano or dance or football. Those are your three options. Which of these things do you want to do? And then allow that child, even at the age of five, to say, you know what, I want to do this one. And then they'll also learn another powerful lesson, which is how to follow through on their own commitments, how to keep their word. And those young kids, even at age five, can learn the lesson that you can't quit things on a bad day and that you have to finish what you start. I love the hard thing rule. It's a great way, even just for ourselves, to make sure we're always challenging ourselves, especially when we do develop these routines that we become comfortable with. In the fourth grade, I decided I would love to play the flute. And then a few weeks in, I hated the flute. Honestly, I didn't think it was fun breathing that long. It felt unfair. It was so uncomfortable. I'd look over at the drummers mid-blow, all blue in the face, and think, screw you kids. (laughs) My mom made me finish out the year, though, to stick with my commitment. I think she was worried she'd somehow enable me to be a quitter. But when we went to return the flute at the music rental store, while we were there, I actually saw a six-year-old playing the piano, and I remember just watching her with my jaw dropped and thinking, I wish I could do that. So we ended up just swapping to a new hard thing, and we rented a piano that day. Yeah, and that's great. I mean, that is exactly what I recommend. Let your kids swap out one hard thing for another, but not until they finish their commitment. I mean, unless there's a really good reason not to. And I'm guessing your mother had that in her head, that she was going to teach you a lesson, not necessarily about flutes or piano or music, but about life. Speaking of routines, I'm obviously a huge advocate for them. I feel like finding a routine that worked for me and building upon it was really the catalyst for taking control of my life. But like I mentioned with traveling, When I broke my routine, it felt pretty unsettling. It felt like something was missing. So I'm wondering, from the perspective of a grit expert, is there a danger in becoming too rigid? What's the balance of routines and rituals versus spicing it up with spontaneity? I think that rituals and routines, I mean, let's call them habits, right? Because that's really effectively what they are for us. They're enormously important. And if you look at people who become successful writers, successful artists, successful really anything, athletes, the list goes on. They're all creatures of routine. Now, they've all created their own routines. So some people say, I work best in the morning. I have to get up. I have to have a cup of coffee. And then I do this before I talk to anybody. I do my two hours of writing. Other people, they're the opposite. They like to work in the middle of the night. I think the idea is that you do need to find routines and rituals that work for you. Now, to your point about spontaneity, of course, the worry that people might have is 
do you become rigid, right? Are you that like extremely unfun person who is so rigid that people can't interrupt your routine to go out and watch a beautiful sunrise or something like that? And that's true that there is a bit of rigidity to any routine. It's in fact what makes it a routine. But I think on balance, people benefit from having routines versus not. And I think that many people really, they're actually lacking almost any routine and their life becomes very disorganized and they just end up wasting a lot of time. And frankly, Um, spending a lot of energy motivating themselves to get started. When you have a ritual routine, it's like autopilot. You don't even think about going to get your exercise in, taking your walk, writing in your journal or other things that are good for you in the long run. I'm pretty sure it's fair to say that you have put more time into studying this one topic of grit than anyone else. You've really been gritty about (laughs) learning about grit. And like anything, the first part is usually surface level. And then you start peeling back those layers and getting into the nitty gritty. Okay, I just realized that that word might have more meaning than a phrase like willy nilly. (laughs) Yeah. But the more you uncover, a lot of times you find something that surprises you. So in all of your years of research, What has been the most surprising thing that you've learned about grit so far? When I started my research, I, of course, had an idea that hard work and self-control would be important to success in life. I think maybe what's really made an impression on me is that these things are pretty different from talent. And how good you are naturally, how easily you pick up something It's not that it's a bad thing. I mean, frankly, I love talent and I would want to be as talented as I could be at whatever it is that I'm doing. And I would want the same for my own children. But the kids who are talented and for whom things come easily are not always the most resilient. They're not always the hardest working. And frankly, they're not even always the most passionate about what they do. So the independence of grit and character from natural talent, I think is one of the most encouraging things for me because it makes me feel like whatever the innate gifts are that I was born with, there's always something I can do. Well, thank you so much for really just getting into the nitty gritty of grit. (laughs) I suddenly have a new interest in that phrase. But for listeners who are interested in learning more about you and your book, Grit, where can they find you online? We have a website where everything is free. It's especially for parents and teachers because it's how to develop grit and gratitude and other strengths of character. It's characterlab.org. It's so easy to get caught up on all the things that we don't have, what we weren't born with. But our success doesn't come from our natural born talent as much as it does with our willingness to keep going. And that willingness can be cultivated. I also think it's helpful to mentally prepare yourself that there will be ups and downs. You will always have those moments of, what the F am I doing? Am I on the right path? Am I meant to be doing this? Why is this so hard? But as with anything, it's all about having your toolbox to flip yourself around and keep moving forward. All of the links mentioned in this episode are at mindlove.com slash 046. I'm also linking to Angela's TED Talk on grit, so definitely be sure to check that out. You can support this show by supporting our sponsors. I'm super picky about my sponsors, and I only partner with brands that I love and fully believe in. So just so you know, they're all fully vetted by me. If you're enjoying Mind Love, tell a friend, family, or coworker about it. And don't forget to subscribe on CastBox or Apple Podcasts, and rate and review on Apple Podcasts. 
Also, for some extra inspiration between episodes, don't forget to sign up for the Morning Mind Love at mindlove.com or text the word morning to 33777. Or you can meet me on Instagram at mindlovepodcast. Thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.